Hi, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to the Seek First podcast. I'm Rick Brown. We want to talk about everything here, life, seeking God, biblical truth, today's culture, and whatever my guests are into, we want to unpack so we can understand what is happening around us. Stick around. I think you're going to be encouraged. Take a minute to subscribe to the Seek First podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks, everybody. Let's jump in. We're going to have a very special night tonight. We are going to sit down with Eric Metaxas, discover all about his new book. It's going to be so great. So uh, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We pray that you would touch our hearts tonight with who you are. You tell us in your word, Lord, that without faith it is impossible to please you. For those who come to you must believe that you are and that you are a rewarder of those who diligently seek you. So Lord, we believe that you're with us right now and that those who seek your face Lord, there is an incredible, gracious reward from the hand of a loving Father to the hearts of His people. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, I just uh, got off the road with Charlie Kirk for four days, and it was awesome. We were in Idaho, and we were in uh, Eugene, Oregon, for the University of Oregon for the Ducks. They, Antifa ran Charlie's group off from five different locations. On the last day, they would secure a place, they would advertise it, Antifa would email, phone call that place and threaten them, and so then they would be canceled by that location. That happened five times, and on the very last day, when we were scheduled to be there, this last Wednesday, they canceled it the day of, had to move out into the sticks, 11 miles outside of Eugene, Oregon, and still they had to turn kids away. So no matter what they did, they could not stop the movement for liberty and freedom. I'm 56, and I see a room filled with six, 700 kids that are high school and college age that are in love, most of them, because it's a conservative movement, so you have a lot of non-Christians there. I shouldn't say a lot. Uh, really, over half are believers in the Lord, and then they love our country. And it's such a rare thing today. It just makes you so excited. So I just got back from that trip knowing that the younger generation and having hope and seeing what the Lord is doing through Turning Point USA. Really amazing. So pray for Charlie. His schedule is super intense. Just a little update. But we are here tonight with a special guest. With his next installment is Atheism Dead. The last time that Eric was with us, he came with his fish out of water, which is a story about his testimony and what the Lord has done in his life. And uh, I love Eric Metaxas. 11 years ago, I was watching a Glenn Beck program, and I'd never heard of Eric Metaxas, and he was promoing Bonhoeffer. And so I got the book, and I was so blown away that this evangelical Christian was on Glenn Beck's Mormon show that I just had to get the book. And I had to see what this was all about and Glenn Beck's review of it. And it was such an encouragement to me. And I really feel like that information, keeping it so fresh, what happened in Nazi Germany, how little did I know a decade later, it's happening in the United States of America. It really, almost prophetically, because that's what history is. It's a prophecy of the future. If you don't pay attention to what's going on. And so tonight, Eric and I are going to have some fun talking with one another about this incredible new book, Is Atheism Dead? Welcome, my friend, Eric Metaxas. Hey, we have this next installment, and yeah. I really want to hear your heart. You know, in 1966, Time Magazine came out and said... Is God dead? That, that's one of the most famous things. I mean, you didn't need to be alive in 1966. You know, young people always say, like, well, no, I never heard of Bob Hope. Like, that's before my time. Have you heard of Lincoln? <laughs> yeah, you, there's some stuff you're responsible for. It doesn't matter if you're alive or not. And if you want to embarrass yourself, you say stuff like, I wasn't alive. Pretend that you're embarrassed you didn't know that thing. For example, if somebody says Time Magazine had that famous cover article, Is God Dead? You go like, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember. Because it was iconic. Like, you didn't need to read Time Magazine or be alive. It was one of those moments in the culture that, you know, when they do, um, what do you call it? Like, if C CNN or somebody, they do, like, at the 60s or whatever. Like, this was one of those moments. And I always, you kind of feel like that was the moment when that dark idea was put into America's living rooms. Like, it existed before. Mm -hmm. 
in universities and, you know, among the elite that, yeah, we don't think God is real anymore. Science has pushed God out. But it didn't really reach middle America until 1966. And a lot of people were chilled by it because it was kind of creepy. Like, is God dead? Like, that's like Nietzsche said, God is dead. But we all know Nietzsche was crazy. But now Time Magazine is putting this out there. And the reason I titled the book Is Atheism Dead is because I feel like that narrative that, you know, among most people, the whole God thing is kind of, yeah, it's kind of for the strange people if they want to believe in God or if you keep it private. But this, the, the really educated people know science is pushing God out. And we've been operating on that narrative in the culture, definitely in universities, since then, basically. And the reason I wrote this book is because it came to my attention sort of recently, like in the last couple of years, that the opposite is happening, that science is, is pointing to God very dramatically, and almost nobody knows it. And the reason most people don't know it is because the culture kind of got stuck on the narrative, God is dead, and like, we've already solved that, you know, we've already answered that question, that, you know, religion is kind of for, you know, people who need a crutch or something like that. Uh, like the gun that I'm packing. It's just a crutch. Just kidding. Just kidding. Uh, I live in New York. I can't have a gun. But I'm saying, you know, the idea that you cling to guns and Bibles and, like, that's for people, whatever. But the irony, and this is like irony, 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 is that since around that time, that Time Magazine published that, the evidence has been piling up and up and up with, with very little attention that, and I can, I'll explain it, but that science is very clearly pointing to the idea that there is not a chance the world just emerged out of chaos or randomness or, or, or whatever. So that's why I titled it that provocative title, because I actually make the claim that if you want to be intellectually honest, you can't be an atheist. You could be an agnostic. You could say, well, I don't believe in all your Christian stuff. That's fine. We could have a conversation. But with the evidence, I mean, not just what I have in this book, but you don't need more than that. I think actual atheism, the idea that there we know there's no God, I actually believe that's dead. Like, if you want to have another conversation, we can. Mm -hmm. But that idea is it can no longer work. Now, there's prophets. The prophets of atheism are out there. We have uh, Christopher Hitchens. We have Richard Dawkins. We have Sam Harris. We have people with a bully pulpit for atheism and evolution and and uh, that they've basically, if God wasn't dead, they've been trying to kill him really hard. And uh, so... Um, well, see, that makes a lot of sense, right? Other people have tried to kill God. And they were very confident for three days that they had succeeded. That's right. People um, reveal themselves, mm -hmm. right? It's not about saying God is dead. It's about saying we hate him. Yeah. Out we of the abundance of the heart. Out of the that's of the kind, it's kind of what it is. Yeah. It's interesting. One of the, just to clarify, so the book, the first part of the book is science that points, and when I say points, that's like too passive almost. It's like dramatically points to the existence of a creator. If you're logical, there's no other way to cut it. That's it. Uh, but most of us haven't heard it, so I put it in the book, and there's three different arguments. The second part of the book is biblical archaeology, which is astonishing. I mean, some of you are up on it, but the reason I decided to write a whole big part of the book on it is because I met a guy in Albuquerque who flat out discovered biblical Sodom. Now, have, have anybody here, have you heard of that? Mm -hmm. Yes. Some of you, if you've heard of that, raise your hand. Okay, that's why I wrote the book. Like, most of us have not heard this, right? And trust me when I tell you, the scientific evidence, this archeological evidence, it's loony. It is like so powerful. So I said, I got to write a book with this. But the third part of the book, I deal with atheism itself because I thought if I'm going to use this title as Atheism Dead, I can't just write about science and archaeology. I got to write about atheism, kind of deal with that. And I make a distinction between what they call the new atheists, the guys that were, you know, yammering around 2005, Christopher Hitchens passed away, but Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, and uh, I can remember Dennett, Daniel Dennett, mm. they were very angry, in your face. It was almost like for a sports team, like, you know, we're pro-atheism, pro-atheism, and, you know, we're the best. And the distinction I make is that their atheism is extremely sloppy. 
if somebody is really serious about atheism, the way, you know, some of us read in college Jean-Paul Sartre or Albert Camus or whatever, these people took this idea seriously. We're in a world without God. They weren't happy about it. They were like, this is bleak. It's this reality we live in. But they weren't like kicking up their heels like, hey, I get to sin. On the contrary, they were saying, life has no meaning. This is tough. How do we work this through philosophically? So I look at some people maybe conclude there's no God, but if they're really, if you're going to take them seriously, or if I, I, I take them seriously, if they understand the implications are really dark, right? So you might believe something, but you're not excited about it. You just say, I just believe this is true. But the new atheists, Hitchens and company, and Dawkins, those are the ones I really write about in the book, th they have like a really adolescent attitude about it, and that's really insulting to adolescents. It's all, many adolescents have a better attitude. And, and it's kind of funny because it takes a lot for me, you know, I give a lot of people a lot of respect, but at some point, I was astonished by how shallow and childish they were and how their books were, like, genuinely pathetic. In other words, they kind of intimidate you because they're really smart, but then when you read what they wrote, you're thinking, you could be really smart and still be very foolish. And their books are, are just... They're terrible, basically. If, you know, if you already, if you want to read something that kind of pumps you up that religion is stupid, that book's for you. But in terms of, like, really grappling with it, honestly, they were not honest. And they were, it was, it was just, I was shocked at how bad it was and how sloppy they were and ultimately how, how rude it is, you know, when you're talking about truth to treat it so cavalierly. So at the end of the book, I kind of deal with history, the history of atheism and, and where we got this idea that science is at war with faith or that faith is at war with science, because that was their mantra. They said over and over and over again, we're for logic and reason. You know, you could say like, I, I'm for math, but you never actually do any math. Like you just say, I'm for math. They're for logic and reason, but they were not reasonable or rational or logical. And it was so stunning to me how true that was. I said, I have to write about it because at the end of the day, the word I would use is it was sh it's shameful, you know, because they led a lot of people astray. And it's one thing to say, I don't like religion, or, I, or there's things about it that bother me. But to do it unseriously, sloppily, just to sell books. So I, I, I do deal with that at the end of the book, uh, because I think it's important. A lot of people were led astray by those guys. So let's talk about the science. You say you deal with the science up front. Yeah. What, what was what the most startling science thing. And maybe you can unpack maybe a couple of things. The that Bigfoot really is real. Just kidding, that was a joke. That was a joke. <laughs> but seriously, the science is, let, let's, we'll start here. Yeah. Um, I wrote a book like seven years ago called Miracles. I've experienced a number of miracles in my life. I know many people that have experienced amazing miracles of God. And I said, you know, I will write a book about that. Try to keep it balanced, because sometimes Christians are so pro-miracle that they're very sloppy, and they go like, I had a, this was a miracle. And then you, like, dig into it, and you realize, that wasn't a miracle. That was, like, a coincidence or a blessing. But, I mean, a, a, a real miracle. Anybody here ever experienced, like, a, like an actual miracle of God or, or, or where God spoke or anything like that? <laughs> anyway, I didn't come here to talk about miracles, but I wrote a book about miracles. But the funny thing is, so I'm writing about all these amazing miracles that happened to friends of mine. I was very journalistic about it, you know, like, I want to get the details. But I said, the biggest miracle is what's called, well, is, the, is God's creation of the universe and earth and life. And I had read a lot of books on that, and there's a term called the fine-tuned argument, right, where a lot of scientists and, and Christians, like Hugh Ross, have said, when you start doing the math, mm -hmm. like only lately, like only in the last 50 years could you do this. Where, where the science enables you to see that, whoa, if the earth were just a tiny bit different, a little bigger, a little smaller, no life. In 1966, when they wrote, you know, is God dead? Science wasn't able to tell you that. But today, science knows that if the planet were a little bit smaller, like Mars, there's not a big enough magnetosphere, and you can't retain the atmosphere, and there's no life. If it was a little bit bigger, uh, the gravity, uh, the mass and the gravity was stronger and it pulls down uh, things that would make it impossible for, you know, ammonia or whatever it is. 
So Christopher Hitchens was asked one day in a, in a rare moment of candor, because he was so nasty to Christians, but he was asked, what's the strongest argument for the God side? You've debated all these people. And, and he said, oh, without any question, the fine-tuned argument. So he got that, right? That this is a formidable argument. And the size of the earth is one example. It goes on and on and on and on. So that a lot of atheistic scientists said, this is freaky. Like, wherever we look, we see evidences of fine-tuning as though it had been designed. But of course, that's not possible, right? But the evidence piles up and up and up and up. So I had read enough of this. I thought, if I'm writing a book on miracles, let me sneak some decent apologetics into it and talk about the miracle of creation. Because it is, it's amazing. I mean, talking about the creation of the universe or the creation of the earth. The universe, if you believe that the universe was created in the Big Bang 13.8 billion years ago, scientists will tell you that within a millionth of a second after the Big Bang, it's kind of funny, right? Because you think when you think of a bang, you think it takes a lot lo more longer than a millionth of a second to, to bang, you know? Just to say the word bang is like about, you know, 500,000 <laughs> millionths of a second. <laughs> but science tells us that within the first millionth of a second before, you know, after the initial Big Bang, all of the four fundamental forces in physics were set in stone. Now, you don't need to know about this. I barely know about it. But th what they call the gravitational force, the electromagnetic force, the strong nuclear force, the strong, the weak nuclear force, these four fundamental physical constants were set in stone to like point zero 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 one. Like if they were off by that much, there's no universe. Now this is what science says. This is not what some Christians say. This is what science tells us. So that's just the exp that, that's just the universe with planets and stars and whatever. Science tells us that we now know what we didn't know years ago that if any of those four fundamental const constants were ever so slightly tiny, tiny, tiny bit different, one way or the other, no universe. Then you go to the Earth, right, and the solar system. If anything, were this were different or that were different, and it goes on and on and on and on and on. So I put that in my Miracles book. Uh, and when the, when the publisher said, you know, you need to write some op-eds to publicize the book, I thought, I need to write about that. So I wrote a piece called Science Increasingly Makes the Case for God. You know, the great irony, right, mm -hmm. that now science is making the case for God. The more we know, the less possible it is to believe it's all random. We just show, it all just showed up. But like, how, how wonderful that we're on the earth and we can breathe, right? I mean, it's a miracle that we're sitting here like we're breathing. We're not even thinking about it. Like, the atmosphere is perfectly designed so science can now show us, like, that's not normal. So I said, I'm going to put that in there, and then I wrote an op-ed about it. And, and the Wall Street Journal published it. First time I was ever published in the Wall Street Journal, and after I've been so pro-Trump, I'm sure it, that was the last time I've ever been published in the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> but um, so the piece that I wrote in the Wall Street Journal went so viral because I think everybody's hungry. We keep hearing science and faith are enemies. So when you write an article that science increasingly points to God, so many people were interested in it that it, they'd never seen anything like it. It, it was shared 650,000 times on Facebook, which is way more than double the second closest piece. So it shows there's a hunger. Human beings want to know. You don't need to be a born-again believer to want to know. Like, is science the enemy of faith or, or, or whatever? But that's kind of what prompted me to write this book. I said, I need to, like, there's way more stuff on fine-tuning. And so then I thought, okay, I could write about fine-tuning, but then there's other evidence. And the reason I really wrote the book is because I met, I met a guy in um, Houston. His name is Dr. James Tour. He is probably the top nanoscientist on planet Earth, like in terms of, like, the, the molecular level, the nano level. And he is an on-fire messianic believer. But he's probably one of the top scientists on planet Earth. And I met him in Houston, and he starts talking to me about something I had not thought about in decades. And some of you, I'm wondering, I always want to know, like, who remembers this. But if somebody says to you, scientists say that life appeared on Earth 4 billion years ago, in the simplest form of life is 
single cell, right? A single cell, the simplest single cells, bacteria, whatever, appeared on planet Earth four billion years ago. Any scientist would say like, yeah, 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 absolutely, yep, yep, yep. And then he'd go on and argue about evolution, about what happened after that. Well, forget about evolution. Let's just go back. You're telling me life, life, single cells emerged on planet Earth out of non-life. In other words, they didn't, they didn't evolve from non-life. You can't have evolution until there's life, whether you believe in evolution or not. The theory begins with life, natural selection, right? So there's no life. So you go from no life to bing, life. How did it happen? So you ask a scientist, hey, I'm curious. I don't know about this stuff. Can you tell me, how did that happen? Well, if you went to school around the time we went to school, or I don't know what, they all tell you the same thing. And some of you, it'll ring a bell. It's in, it's in the squishy gray matter someplace hidden. You, you remember it, for it was on the test. In 1952, in the University of Chicago, two grad student scientists, M Miller and Urey, did an experiment. They reasoned that four billion years ago on the Earth, uh, you know, there's what they call the prebiotic soup, right? There was this, you know, uh, primordial, you know, primordial ooze. ooze. It was just like, you know, wa wa you know, saline, you know, like the oceans or whatever with no life. And probably lightning struck it and it catalyzed and created something, right? So they did an experiment and when they ran electricity through some of this stuff, they got some amino acids. Now, you don't have to care or know what amino acids are, because I barely do also, right? But the point is, scientists got so excited, they were like, we're done. We, we figured it. it out how it started. Life, because we got amino acids, next thing you know, we're gonna get proteins, next thing you know, we're gonna get da 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 da, -da. next thing you know, you know, fish are jumping, and we got all kinds of cool stuff <laughs> happening, right? Well, it was so exciting that, you know, in the 70s, when I was in science class, whatever, it was on the test. It was like, that's how they say life started. Well, the experiment was in 1952. We've had basically seven decades passed, and they've been working on this problem ever since. And my friend James Tour, who I met in Houston, says, I know more about this, you know, than practically anybody. I mean, he, he's very humble. But I can tell you, he knows more about this than anybody. He creates molecules in the lab. I mean, if you read, there's two chapters on him in the book. It's funny. Like, with the level that this guy's working on, it's freaky stuff. So you can't blow smoke with this guy on this issue. And he says, in seven decades, they have figured out absolutely nothing. Seventy years, billions of dollars of funding, thousands of scientists, nothing. Now, it's even worse than nothing. He says that not only have they not moved the ball forward, because it was all this hope that we're going to, you know, we discovered amino acids, we're just getting started. You know, we're going to move the ball forward. Not only have they, they haven't moved the ball forward a millimeter, but he says because science is more and more and more advanced, they've actually moved the ball backwards because we now know that a single cell is so complex it's so infinitely more complex than they realized in 1952 that it's like the target that we're aiming at, you know, we're gonna get better and better and we're gonna eventually hit the target. Like the target has zipped off to the other side of the universe. Like we're never gonna hit the target, ever. And, but what I find funny is that J James Tour, he's like hopped up angry about this. He's like, they're clueless. They're totally clueless. They're fudging all this stuff and I'm demanding that they cut off funding. Because they know in seven decades, they have no idea. But what brave scientist is going to, like, raise his hand and say, like, oh, and by the way, we spent $41 billion, uh, you know, 80% of our taxpayer money, and uh, we've discovered nothing. We know nothing of how life – I mean, what would be a more basic question that you could ask as a scientist? Like, what, what's the most basic thing? Hey, how did life come into being? No idea. So when he told me this stuff... Yet they talk about it with such confidence they know exactly Oh, they how. know. Oh, yeah, they know. It's almost like COVID science. You know? Well, <laughs> like now, actually, now... Yeah, it's kind of, But actually, what... But you know what? That's kind of the theme of the, of the book on some level is that, like, you realize when you're dealing with human beings, 
you know, there's a lot of sin, there's a lot of temptation to fudge stuff. I mean, Christians do it, right? We're human beings, and you're kind of like, you know, you don't want to embarrass yourself. You don't want to... Well, can you imagine that science kind of becomes the thing? Like, religion's on the way out, and scientists know everything. And on the most basic question, they know less than nothing. So this guy, James Tour, he's calling them out. Like, he's like, you know, whatever. So I found this funny, and of course, I said... You know, does anybody know about this? Like, when he, when he mentioned this to me, I was like, how come I haven't asked this question, like, in years? I've, you know, we're all arguing about evolution and fine-tuned universe. What about this? And I said, I need to write about this. James Tour, he's so smart, like, he doesn't write books. You ever meet anybody like that? <laughs> like, I just write peer-reviewed articles for, you know, whatever. But it's like, my calling, God's calling in my life is to get this information out, you know, to us, to, to the regular people who read books but don't do science, mm -hmm. to know what, what's going on. So when he told me about this, I said, nobody knows about this. Nobody's talking about this. I said, i got to write about this in my book. So the first part of the book is Fine-Tuned Universe, this piece of it, which is called, abi they call it abiogenesis, which really means, you know, life emerging out of non-life, as if. And uh, the third part, which I won't go into now, but it gets into the whole idea of the Big Bang and how we've kind of, like, we've all, all sort of accepted that but we forgot how controversial it was among scientists because scientists know that if you say the, the universe started, in fact, one story in here which I find funny, Einstein, you think of him as he's the most secure scientist there could ever be. He's Einstein, right? Einstein discovered with his equations in 1911 that the universe is expanding, which implies it expanded from a point, which implies it started at some point. Well, even in 1911, even the genius Einstein was so insecure as a scientist that this smacked of religion, that this makes it sound like somebody created the universe. So he fudged it. Einstein. So you, you want to think about, you, you know, your average scientist being insecure about what his scientific peers think if he, like, leans toward religion. The great Einstein was insecure. So he fudged it. He created this thing called the cosmological constant until other scientists eventually proved, like, no, Einstein, you were right, so you were wrong to correct yourself. And he said that doing that was the greatest blunder of his whole life. In other words, the science was clearly leading in a certain direction, but his bias against religion forced him to change the science. So the theme is that science never leads you away from God. God will never lead you away from science. There's only one truth. But we've bought this lie that science is the enemy of religion or faith is the enemy uh, of science. So anyway, I write about the Big Bang and how they kept, so many people kept trying to deny it because they like to think like, no, 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 the universe existed forever. So if the universe existed forever, it doesn't need a creator, it doesn't need blah, 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 blah. So it's actually kind of a, a number of funny stories, but for, for time's sake, I'll leave it at that. But so those are the three parts of the science. And, you know, when I talk to people, I realize most people just aren't up on this. And I'm thinking, you know, especially the believers, like the evidence for God from science has become so ridiculously clear. We need to know. Like, we need to know that anytime anybody kind of sneers at you or this or that, the science on the highest level and with every day it gets worse, points to a creator. That's the headline. And it's real, and, you know, there's a, there's a lot of uh, examples and stuff in the book, but a lot of believers, we've kind of, we've intuited this, uh, or we've internalized this lie that somehow our faith is separate from science or something. It's just the opposite. The Lord who created the universe, um, who loves us, he is truth, and he wants us to use science to glorify him. And the early scientists, Isaac Newton and everybody, they saw science as a way to glorify the Lord. Mm -hmm. And we need to recover that, you know, really quickly. But I, I just said I have to get this out, generally speaking, and, you know, I think believers need to know this, not so you can argue with, with non-believers, but just you walk around with a different confidence when you realize science is, you know, straight up, pointing to a creator. Like, there's no discussion. Uh, you know, you can argue about details, but that's something that most of us were stuck in the 1966 narrative that 
you know, God and religion, they're, they're, they're separate. So I said, this is to me kind of a big headline, and it's only because we live in such a secular culture that this has happened, you know, that the science has not, you haven't been reading about this over the years because they kind of just dismiss it like Well, they're not whatever. doing big headlines about it, right? Because no. it's, it's counterproductive to the narrative that they've been holding for all of this time. And so the beautiful thing that you're giving us this tool in this book for Christians who uh, really s usually tap out when somebody wants to go scientific, because they're not confident, but what you're sharing with us, which seems totally logical, that all facts, all truth, all rationale, all leads us to the, the, to the throne of God, to who yeah. he is. And I want to tell you, a lot of scientists are believers, but like Einstein, they're afraid, they're shy. And I think we all need to be out and proud about our Jesus freak faith because it happens. It's time to, to come out of the closet. Science. Yeah. So in a similar way, which I'm more attuned to, just being a pastor for 32 years, is every time the archaeologist spade goes into the ground, all the skeptics that have said things, well, we have no artifact about this. We have nothing about this. And every time they go digging, they dig it up and they go, there's the truth. So take us on to the next step. Well, that's, yeah, so that's the second part of the book is about archaeology and the title of the second. Could you be quiet? I'm trying to talk. <laughs> Was that a, uh-huh. No, the... God bless you. Um, He's from the, New York. The, He's rude, but we love him. You know? I, I, no, I... Um, <laughs> I uh, the, the, the science, archaeology. The archaeology. Archaeology. The archaeology stuff, I called it the stones will cry out. Oh, that's awesome. Because, obviously, Jesus said that. But I thought, here you have a situation where it is true, since archaeology began... The evidence has been corroborating the scripture as history over and over and over and over and over and over and over. And it's really freaky that imagine if you didn't know what to think. Every time you turn around, archaeology finds something that seems to corroborate some weird little thing from the scripture. And it, it, it keeps happening over and over and over again. And I didn't know too much. I mean, I've followed this over the years, but it was when I was, I mentioned that, you know, I met this uh, super scientist in Houston. I was in um, Albuquerque speaking at Skip Heitzig's church, and on a Saturday, he said to me, oh, you got to meet my friend, um, Dr. Stephen Collins. He discovered biblical Sodom. You know, I said, what? What? Biblical Sodom? Like, are you kidding? You know, that's like one step away from discovering like a snake with a, with, a, with, a, with a voice box or something in the sand. <laughs> Thank you. Um, <laughs> like, what? that's like the first couple of pages of the Bible. That's like mythical stuff. Like, I believe it happened, but I never expect archaeology is going to, you know, corroborate it. So I kind of looked into it, and like I was saying, with miracles, like, I'm, a little, I'm skeptical. I'm a New Yorker, right? I'm a little skeptical because... I want to know, God doesn't need us to cheat or to exaggerate, you know. So if somebody tells you how many people were at the service tonight, and you don't say like 700. <laughs> because God doesn't need you. To, that actually is called lying technically. <laughs> so a lot of times believers will be like, did you hear? They discovered this. They discovered Then you look and you're like, eh, I don't know. Well, and again, because I live in New York, I went to Yale. I'm surrounded by skeptics. Like I want to make sure that if I say something, I, I know. I'm not, you know, just talking to fellow believers. So when I heard this, I thought, like, biblical Sodom, that's 1700 B.C. Um, like, okay, you know, people say stuff, and maybe they discovered it, or maybe they discovered something that some people say, maybe it is, or maybe it isn't, whatever. But when I looked into it, it was like open and shut, zero question. This man discovered biblical Sodom. And it, it, a lot of these things, I mean, you know, I hope you'll read the book because, honestly, it's in the details to understand, you know, somebody can say something. You could say, I discovered biblical Sodom, and you say, how do you know? And then the more you hear, the more you realize, well, it's possible. I want to believe you did, but we still don't really know. But in this case, the details are nuts. Like, first of all, this guy, uh, Stephen Collins, this uh, ar archaeologist that I met, he was uh, on a tour of Israel. It was like 1996. You know, he's on a tour bus 
south, uh, like the southern part of the Dead Sea, where previous biblical archaeologists had said Sodom and Gomorrah were probably down there, and they're probably like under the Dead Sea or whatever. And he was familiar with the arguments for why it was down there, and there's a lot of holes in the arguments, so he felt funny about sharing with the tour group this information. He said it doesn't really add up. It's like this is more like 2300 BC, and this is the, like it didn't. So he goes to the scripture, okay, because he believes it's the word of God, and he opens up to the first few pages of Genesis and reads what it says about Sodom and Gomorrah. And for the first time, he sees with super clarity this happened on the Kikar Plain. This is the fertile area north of the Dead Sea, you know, south of the Sea of Galilee, around the Jordan River, probably on the eastern side of the Jordan River. And he says, wait a minute. Like, the scripture, this is the word of God. It doesn't lie. Like, why are we even entertaining the idea that it's down here? And so he figures it has to be up there. So it took him a number of years to get back to, 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 to look into it. And he found a number of they call them tells or talls, which it's like, you know, these ancient cities that existed for millennia. It's kind of kind of crazy. Like when you think about how long has this town been here, right? I mean, there are cities in that part of the world that were there for like 7,000 years, 6,000 years, 5,000 years. So this city was there thousands and thousands of years before 1700 BC. Think about that. It's nuts, right? But you know, it's layers upon layers upon layers. So they find this huge mound, you know, and they know that the city has built up over the years. So he determines that this is probably the one, this is the best candidate. So he starts to excavate in, I don't know, 2004, 5, 6, someplace around there. This is in modern Jordan, as far it's as in Jor in the, Right, it's yeah. in Jordan. So it's just across and the river. And one of the reasons they couldn't... Um, you, one of the reasons that people were buying these other theories is because of the military tension between Israel and Jordan and stuff. So for like 30 years, nobody's going there, right? So finally, he goes there. He's, you know, you're able to go there. And he, um, he finds the spot. He thinks this is like, this was a gigantic city. And again, when you read the scripture, you realize, wow, this was like a huge city. It's hard to believe 1700 BC, a huge city. And... Um, so they start to dig, and when he gets down to the level of 1700 B.C., they find a level of soot and, or ash, more like soot, that is average of five feet deep for the entire city. It's a huge city. So, like, that's pretty interesting, right? Well, within this soot, they find tiny bits of, like, melted brick. Have you ever tried to melt a brick? <laughs> it's like you need at least three cigarette lighters to pull it off, right? <laughs> melt a brick. Do you know what heat we're talking about, right? They found tiny bits of human bone, like tiny charred, you know. No one had ever seen anything like this. An earthquake wouldn't do this, uh, a volcano or whatever. A normal fire wouldn't no, do no, it. No, I mean, no, like normal nothing. This is like there was no way to account for what they discovered. And they also found that within these five feet of, 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 of soot, that the, the stuff that they found within it that hadn't been turned to soot was like churned on a level that they'd never seen. Like, how could that be? You know, like it wasn't settled the way it would be with an earthquake or a normal fire or anything like that. So they called it the Cuisinart effect. It was like it was all put in a blender. No one had ever seen anything like it. Now, on the first day they found this, this guy, Stephen Collins, who is a ceramic typologist. In other words, you know, he could like, from 50 yards, like spot something and go, you know, 1620 BC, you know, the Assyria. Like, he knows this stuff cold. So he, he finds a bit of a jar that he knows instantly is 1700 B.C., so he knows, right? He flips it over, and he sees a, a green glassy glaze on it. He says, well, that doesn't make sense. Like, that technology didn't come into being until, like, you know, 750 A.D. We got a problem. So anyway, long story short, they take it to a lab in, in New Mexico, and 
the, the lab people who don't know anything about this tell them there's only one thing that could account for this, that this, this uh, ceramic jar was melted. Like, again, try to melt ceramics, melt. And they said it would have to have been exposed to something like 5,000 degrees. I mean, a pizza oven is like 800 degrees. 5,000 degrees for like 25 seconds. Like, it would have been a short period of time, but, you know. And then they look inside the ceramic, and they see that even within it, there was like tiny beginnings of melting with it. I mean, you know, this is like super, super analysis. And they ultimately... 21 scientists like converged on this and the article appeared a month ago in Nature magazine. Nature magazine is one of the premier science journals in on the planet, okay? Peer-reviewed, super scientific. I could barely read the article. It was like just intense scientific analysis from 21 scientists of every detail of what they discovered at this place. And they said the only thing that it could account for everything they found was what's called um, a cosmic airburst event, which means a meteor coming into our atmosphere and exploding with such intense heat that, that that's the, literally the only thing they could say could have created everything. So now this actually happened in Siberia in 1908. Some of you have heard of the Tunguska uh, Siberia explosion, where they say an, a, uh, a, a meteorite of about 180 feet in diameter, so like not much bigger than this room. Now imagine the size of the Earth. This is like nothing, right? Came into the atmosphere at 35,000 miles an hour, exploded about five, maybe five miles above the surface, and the explosion was the equivalent of a thousand Hiroshima bombs. You're like, yeah, what? Yeah. And this is what science says. Mm -hmm. and, they, and the scientists concluded, like, that's almost exactly what happened right here in this place that Stephen Collins says he believes is biblical Sodom. Mm -hmm. So even in this long scientific article in Nature, peer-reviewed article, they cannot help but say that this has to be where the Sodom story comes from, even if it's not true, or even if the Bible's not the Word of God, even they said on every level it matches up. So, so what, now what we I, know how hot fire and brimstone oh is, Oh my right? gosh. It's, it's 5,000 so, degrees. It's so, well no, that's the, the 5,000 degrees was just what did that. They say the initial explosion is all, like infinitely hotter. I think the surface of the, surface of the sun is 10,000 10, degrees. It's 10, Smart degrees. dude. You just think because, like, you know, he rode bulls, he's not that bright. <laughs> and he's not. But on this stuff, wow. But can you imagine? I mean, think about this. The surface of the sun, sun is 10,000 10, degrees. So they say at the center of this explosion, it was like 300,000 degrees for like a femtosecond. And then, you know, like the whole, wow. it's all so crazy. But what I find cool is that Stephen Collins says that from... Uh, the 1700 BC level, the next level where you find any human civilization, mm -hmm. seven centuries past. And I was reading today, I think in Jeremiah, just by accident, I stumbled on the verse where it says, Edom will be destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah. It'll be like a. And it describes that it knows it becomes so horrific to people that no one will go there. Because it, it's like haunted. It's like God's judgment was so serious that it's like it's a place of demons and jackals. And like you don't even want to go near it. So we have the evidence that for seven centuries on the most prime piece of real estate imaginable where there had been civilization for thousands of years, there was absolutely nothing. So anyway, that, you know, those are the highlights. But I said, this is an amazing story. This is like archaeology corroborating the earliest pages of the scripture. So I said, I got to write about that because nobody's heard about it. And then I said, I've got to write, you know, a third of the book just about all the other archaeology, which you probably know about. But it's amazing what they have found and how it, how it over and over and over again proves that the Bible is history. 
And most believers don't know that. We need to know that. Yeah. And then if, the, if you have a friend or somebody who is uh, agnostic or, you know, just, they say, well, I'm a Christian, but not like you, you know. You say, well, I'll tell you. Like, the evidence, you probably don't know because the mainstream media hasn't covered this stuff for a long time. But it is really astonishing evidence. And there are so many examples from this, from, from, you know, in the, in the, that I write about in the book. And there's a zillion I didn't write about. But I just thought, as believers, we need to know that this is true. And I kind of feel like the scripture, you know, I'll, tomorrow I will, like, preach ab about this. But there's so many stories. But the verse that comes to me, it's, it's um, what is it, it's Jeremiah, uh, where it says, when, when uh, the enemy comes in like a flood, uh, the Spirit of the Lord will raise up a standard against him. And Isaiah. I, Isaiah? Isaiah. You sure? All right. Positive. I knew that. I ride I was just testing you. I, I was testing person. you. I was just testing you. Uh, no, but it was, um, it was, I actually believe that that's the verse that comes to mind. Like, as yeah. things go crazy in this yeah. country, and we're in the middle of this battle, mm -hmm. and we know it, right? Mm -hmm. Is this when, 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 the, when the enemy comes in like a flood, I mean, when you have cultural Marxism and sheer lunacy everywhere you look, the enemy uh, comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will raise up a standard. Now, standard means a battle flag. That's right. In the midst of the battle, like mm -hmm. the Lord says, I'm here, follow this flag. We're in the fight. Mm -hmm. And I really believe that's what's happening. And to me, mm -hmm. the James Tour abiogenesis information, mm -hmm. the brand new information about biblical Sodom, like these are two huge pieces. There's tons of stuff. But, but when I discovered these two things in the last, like, two and a half years, I just said, I can't believe I'm alive at a time when the Lord is allowing us to see these things. Mm -hmm. Because most of us didn't think that anybody would ever discover biblical Sodom, you know? Like, mm -hmm. whoa, that's asking too much. Yeah. And it just gets crazy. There's even crazier stuff in there. I won't even mention it. But there's, it, it really is flat-out nuts what, what, how much evidence there is for the God of Scripture and I said, we need to be armed with it, especially at this time when the enemy is so aggressive and so angry so that we have a peace, that we walk in peace. Of like, we know what we believe is rational. And if you don't believe it at this point, you're being irrational, you know, so we can have a conversation. But don't pretend that reason is, on the, is, is against faith. It's not. So Hebrews 11:6 says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because those who come to him must believe that he is, and he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So bring us home, Eric. All of this stuff is to lead us to the feet of Jesus. Well, that's, that's the thing. It's like I didn't realize that even when I was writing the book. It was after I wrote the book I realized the Lord is so amazing. But a lot of times we say cerebrally, like, God is an amazing God. God is an amazing God. But I mean, you know, I mentioned miracles. If you experience God in a miraculous way, or if you see his awesome wonder in any actual way, it, you just, you know, you might know it intellectually, but sometimes you know things in a different way. And I really believe the Lord is leading us in these dark times to, to say that I'm going to show you more and more of who I am. And you're going to be more and more in awe of me. You know, we say we're in awe of God. Mm -hmm. But when you understand the level of design that went into this universe, it's actually scary. He designed atoms. Mm -hmm. um, he, he didn't design molecules. He, he farmed that out to some angels because he was very busy that day. <laughs> That's not true. Uh, but I mean, when you start like realizing that sci only now does science give us the ability to see how amazing God is. Mm -hmm. And it really will, it, it will almost stop your heart. Some of the stuff you read in here, there's a chapter in here on water. I won't go into it. I never dreamt I could be interested in water. <laughs> but I stole a line from The Simpsons. Uh, there was like, they went to a water park, and there was a really scary ride called H2. Whoa. <laughs> Thank you. And I said, now that's what I think of water, because... God's design of water, maybe I'll talk about this tomorrow in one of the yeah. services, but I'm, I'm telling you, it, it's heart-stopping. It is just, you, you just say, Lord, I knew you were amazing, but 
honestly, 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 I simply didn't dream you were this amazing. And it goes on and on and on and on and on and on and on. And I just think that in these last times, in these last days, as things get dark, the Lord wants to fire us up to say, the God we were, the idea that that God knows your name, loves you, died for you, wants to be with you, wants to have a relationship with you. When you realize how awesome he is, that other part means even more. And I, I just believe that, that, you know, God is a God of history, and he is just revealing things to us that, you know, you, you wonder why didn't he reveal these things before. And I find it almost funny. It's kind of like he says, like, yeah, I'll let them discover some stuff from science. So for, you know, for a few decades, they'll get kind of cocky and stuff. <laughs> but then eventually, like, <laughs> they're going to see, like, whoops, no, uh, science is the— uh, is pointing very, very clearly to the idea that they're, they've been arrogant and uh, I, I exist. But I find it funny and beautiful and, you know, all the things that God is at, in, at once. But it, it does, it, it did really chill me to think, like, God is more amazing than I realized. It's a visceral thing. Like, you just, you, you just are emotionally moved by how amazing he is and how he has allowed us through science, to see it more and more and more clearly. So I really do believe we're going to see revival, because this stuff is, is irrefutable. This is not like some crazy idea. I mean, this is science, folks. And I think that there, there are people out there, they're just looking for an excuse to say, okay, I believe, but they're, they're not ready yet. And I really think that the Lord has ordained this, this time to reveal these things. He could have revealed it 100 years ago, but he chose... Yeah now. And, and actually, I'll, I'll just say one thing before I forget. The, every time I write a book, I, I find stuff that blows my mind. I, I can't believe the Lord allowed me to discover this. The two most serious atheists, or two of the most serious atheists of the 20th century, are Jean Paul Sartre and Albert Camus, okay? French existentialist, whatever, okay? Super serious about philosophy, trying to figure out a way through the world without God or whatever. Now, I didn't know this. I think, like, nobody knows this, but I discovered it in writing this in the book, and I still can barely believe it. Both of them, 20 years apart, totally independent of each other, both of them came to faith in God at the end of their lives. Wow. Wow. I mean, yeah. now, that, I'm telling you, that's going to that's gonna cause some people real problems. Because their heroes are, you know, Camus, and blah, blah, blah. when they find this out, they're going to be ticked. And Camus, it's funny because uh, Jean-Paul Sartre's, you know, girlfriend of, you know, 50 years was furious when she figured this out. Like, she was like, how could he betray us, you know? It's like, betray you? Why? Because, like, he's open to the truth? So, but the, even that, like, why would the Lord allow us to learn that now? I mean, this happened, Camus, in 1960. And, uh, so, sorry, yeah, Camus, 1960, Jean-Paul Sartre, 1980. And, like, nobody seems to know this. And I, I, it's, I promise you, it's only by God's grace that somehow he allowed me to stumble on this. And so it's at the end of the books that, to, to say that if you take atheism really seriously, if you're willing to look down the barrel of that gun, if you, if you dare to look at it, you're going to realize it can't work. And you probably find God. And those two guys did. And people who are flippant about atheism, who aren't really looking at it seriously, you know, they can just kind of trash talk all they want. But people who are way smarter than they were and who looked at atheism and its implications without flinching, they came to God. That, that's more evidence. You know, that's evidence from history and biography. But I just thought, this is important stuff, and we need to know this. And we need to share this because God wants to use it. I don't believe you can argue somebody into the kingdom. Mm -hmm. But in my case, I remember, you know, before the Holy Spirit can get you, sometimes he needs to kind of clear away some of the intellectual brush, you know, mm -hmm. so that you can see a little bit more clearly. And that's kind of what I see happening. So who knows? But you can tell I'm, uh, I'm, I'm just excited because I know this is not my opinion. Mm -hmm. uh, this is all, you know, footnoted and stuff. And it's, uh, we are living in exciting times. It's very exciting. And I know, I know that it's going to bolster people's faith, Eric, because when you can look back and your confidence in the declaration of God's word, I already believe it by faith, 
But when all the pieces come together, it's like a puzzle that, you know, those last few pieces yeah. and they're like, bam, bam, bam. And you see the whole yes. picture. It creates a, a passionate confidence that you don't shrink when people start pushing. That's exactly, that, that was exactly yeah. my thing. I was thinking like, I already believe. I already believe. But it's yeah. like, now I, now I believe, like really believe. Now like, I believe kind of on funny. steroids. It's, it, it's kind of, but it's kind of funny. Like you start realizing yeah. like, I, my faith was not, you know, as strong as I thought it was. Yeah. Because now that I know this stuff, like, boy, well, I'm, we get, I'm more zealous for God. We get know? a little squishier, bashful when we don't yeah. have these answers, yeah. and they push on us because they run the skeptics' headlines yeah. on the front page. Yes, and when the truth comes out, they run it on D six, or they the don't back, run it, or they, or they, they don't, don't even run it. Yeah, and in these times, God knows. God's the, the same God that you're sharing with, yeah. telling us all about. These times we need to have confidence in him. Amen. He's going to pray for us that our faith will be strengthened. And I encourage you, come back to the table back there. Eric will sign your book. Get a cool selfie with his Greek, handsome, rugged face. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. We love you, Lord. And Lord, we thank you that you are so merciful and tender-hearted that you would stoop to our level and give us evidence from science, from archaeology. You desire for us to know you, and you will use everything because you love us so much. You don't say, I don't care. You have to find me. I'm here. You desire to reach us, and you give us so many things Father God, we ask you, Lord, increase our faith. Help us, Lord. Help our unbelief, Lord God. M many of us, in tiny ways, uh, have bought the lies of the culture, or maybe we were hurt growing up. All of us uh, have internalized small and big lies. Even when we say we believe you, we ask you, Lord, to help us only to believe you, only to believe what your word says. Lord, give us a fire to know your word, to read your word, to know that it is the word of the one who created this universe out of nothing and who created us in his image because he desires to know us forever in eternity. Father God, give us a fire to know you. Increase our faith so that as we walk through our lives, our boldness for you, our love for you, our love for our enemies and our friends and for strangers would draw others to yourself. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Eric, thank you so much. Thank you. I see the light in the darkness. I won't hope for the hopeless and rest for the weary mind and you've got truth for the taking but my heart won't be shaken if today be the day that i die whoa 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 now worry about tomorrow or fear in times of trouble I keep my heart seeking you Oh, I will keep my heart seeking you Whoa, 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 Yeah.
or fear in times of trouble I'll keep my heart seeking you I will keep my heart seeking